Section four of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The American War. Seventeen seventy four to seventeen seventy seven. It was fortunate for Charles Fox that his quarrel with the court party, the crisis in his own financial position, and the climax of the American difficulties all came in the same year forced by insolvency into some measure of respectability completely independent of all past political ties he found ready-made to his hand a cause important enough to demand the full exercise of all his talents and honest enough to give him an opportunity of retrieving his character it is not often that a young politician who leaves his party from petulance and wrong-headedness can so soon hide his faults under the aegis of liberty and justice when fox quarrelled with lord north it was certain that the chief motive of his conduct in the immediate future would be hatred of the man whom he had wronged his early speeches on the american question show that he took it up as he had before taken up the case of wilkes because it was obviously the next move in the political game he espoused the cause of the colonies because lord north led the battle against them but fortunately for him and his country in the new policy which he adopted burke was at his side to prompt and chatham before him to lead the more he studied the question and the more he fought the question the more his warm heart and clear mind were touched by the principles at stake he saw that below the legal questions of the nature and the extent of the power to tax the colonies lay far more important principles of right and wrong and before the year of his defection was over the tory champion of the prerogative who had wantonly trampled upon the liberty of the press had become the whig champion of the right of resistance and the denouncer of arbitrary rule the year seventeen seventy four was the critical year of the american struggle on the policy adopted by the home government and especially on the means chosen by which to carry out that policy depended the action of the vast majority of american citizens men who were attached to the crown did not desire independence and hated fanaticism but who would unhesitatingly prefer their liberty to their loyalty if loyalty meant submission to what they believed to be unjust in england the whole question was woefully misunderstood and the jealousies of english parties made it impossible to unravel the knot chatham and burke agreed that england must render justice before she could demand obedience as long ago as the debates upon the repeal of the stamp act chatham had boldly exclaimed i rejoice that america has resisted three millions of people so dead to all the feelings of liberty as voluntarily to submit to be slaves would have been fit instruments to make slaves of the rest but neither burke nor chatham were quite agreed as to what justice really meant and the latter declared in a letter to a correspondent in seventeen seventy four if i could persuade myself that the americans entertained the most distant intentions of throwing off the legislative supremacy and great constitutional superintending power and control of the british legislature i would be the very first person to enforce that power by every exertion the country was capable of making 
the clergy and the landowners did not look deeper into the matter than to notice that the colonists were for the most part dissenters and were in declared opposition to the king the commercial classes following as usual their pecuniary interests were for or against the americans according as their particular trades were affected by the dispute even in the ministry itself opinion was much divided mansfield and the lawyers were all for the assertion of legal right and the punishment of those who ventured to disobey the law the duke of grafton and lord dartmouth led a smaller section who wished for conciliation lord north indolent and amiable shrank from pushing matters to an extreme and yet shrank more from offending the king so he allowed england to drift aimlessly into a war which begun by misunderstanding was carried on with incapacity and ended in disgrace there were two courses and two courses only open for the ministry to adopt and even as late as seventeen seventy four either of them if pursued with sufficient vigour might have been successful the one was the policy of burke a full and frank repudiation of england's claim to raise a revenue from america and a generous recognition of the capacity of the colonies to a large share of self-government the other was the policy of the king a prompt and swift suppression of all opposition by irresistible force lord north adopted neither the one nor the other but a mixture of both by slow and hesitating threats without the power to punish by weak efforts to punish when punishment had become not deterrent but exasperating he made conciliation and repression alike impossible half-hearted coercion ill-conceived and feebly executed cannot but stand self-condemned during the year seventeen seventy four fox was undergoing a course of political education his quarrel with lord north by no means meant that he had become a whig but gradually the change came over him which has been common enough in later political history and the man who separated from his party leader for personal reasons soon adopted the principles of his political opponents with fox the change was probably far more sincere than it usually is he had been a tory in politics without ever having been a tory by conviction his quarrel with lord north and the king freed him from party ties and put him in opposition to the tory minister the proposals of the government to close the harbour of boston to alter the constitution of massachusetts by act of parliament and to try massachusetts prisoners in other colonies or possibly even in england were sufficiently startling to make even the most careless of politicians look well to his compass before he cast himself loose from his moorings in so stormy a sea against the boston port bill on march twenty third seventeen seventy four fox merely objected that it gave too much power into the hands of the crown a month later when the massachusetts charter bill was before the house he denounced the attempt to tax the colonists without their consent and urged the house to pause before it passed a bill of pains and penalties which began with a crime and ended with a punishment and to consider whether it was not more proper to govern by military force or by management just before this speech 
he had given his first vote with the Whig party in favor of repealing the duty on tea. Burke, whose great speech on American taxation was delivered on this occasion, had during the session become his political instructor. In July, the death of Lord Holland severed the last tie which bound him to the court, and in the October of the same year, in a private letter to Burke, he avows himself not merely a Whig, but a devoted follower and adviser of Lord Rockingham. Referring to some success achieved by General Gage's soldiers over the Boston mob, he says, What a dismal piece of news! I do not know that I was ever so affected with any public event either in history or in life. The introduction of great standing armies into Europe has there made all mankind irrevocably slaves. But to complain is useless, and I cannot bear to give the Tories the triumph of seeing how dejected I am at heart. I have written to Lord Rockingham to desire him to lose no time in adopting some plan of operations in consequence of this event. I am clear that a secession is now totally unadvisable, and that nothing but some very firm and vigorous step will be at all becoming. Whether that or anything else can be useful, I am sure I do not know. For the next nine years, English politics were wholly dominated by the American War. Its first direct result was to divide parties at last upon an intelligible basis. The war was acknowledged to be the King's War. Lord North was well known to be half-hearted from the first, but obedient. The King became a party leader. The minister was seen to be but his servant. The party became the King's party the policy the king's policy, and its failure the king's defeat. Parties became necessarily divided into the party for the king and the party against him. All the better part of Fox's nature impelled him to enlist himself on the side against the king. He learned from Burke to dread and to detest royal influence in politics. He believed with Chatham in the essential injustice of the English claim to tax the colonists his logical mind grasped with ease the key of the situation. Whether the claims of England were technically legal or illegal mattered but little. An attempt to coerce the colonists could not but drive them to assert their independence. The assertion of independence could not but enlist all Europe on their side. How could England stand up single-handed against the world? What sort of relations could she establish, even if she was successful, with a colony which she had conquered with the sword? In his speech on the address delivered at the beginning of the session of 1776, he put this with his accustomed force. We have been told that it is not for the interest of Spain and France to have America independent. Sir, I deny it, and say it is contrary to every principle of common sense. Is not the division of the enemy's power advantageous? Is not a free country engaged in trade less formidable than the ambition of an old corrupted government, their only formidable rival in Europe? The noble lord who moved the amendment said that we were in the dilemma of conquering or abandoning America. If we are reduced to that, I am for abandoning America. What have been the advantages of America to the kingdom? extent of trade, increase of commercial advantages, and a numerous people growing up in the same ideas and sentiments as ourselves. Now, sir, 
would those advantages accrue to us if america was conquered not one of them such a possession of america must be secured by a standing army and that let me observe must be a very considerable army consider sir that that army must be cut off from the intercourse of social liberty here and accustomed in every instance to bow down and break the spirits of men to trample on the rights and to live on the spoils cruelly wrung from the sweat and labour of their fellow-subjects such an army employed for such purposes and paid by such means for supporting such principles would be a very proper instrument to affect points of a greater or at least more favourite importance nearer home points perhaps very unfavourable to the liberties of this country as the years went on events proved that fox was in the right and george the third in the wrong the half-heartedness and ignorance of the ministers combined with the incapacity of the generals to render conspicuous the failure of the war nation after nation joined in the hue and cry against england in the hour for necessity as jays chatter and peck round a stricken eagle the storm-cloud settled lower and lower upon the head of the brave and patient king as he fought blindly and uselessly on in sheer despair the more hopeless became the struggle the more men turned in anxious expectation of relief to the faithful few who had kept unstained from the first the banner of opposition to the crown the rights of nations and opposition to prerogative government became the watchwords of the whigs as they reformed themselves under fox and burke out of the chaos of existing parties during the american war in the enunciation of these principles fox found the means to obliterate from men's memories the records of his older self and stood forward in the eyes of his countrymen no longer the political gambler and the insolvent rhetorician but the trusted leader of the younger whigs and the acknowledged champion of whig principles yet the attentive observer of the public utterances of fox during the famous parliament of seventeen seventy four will look in vain for any signs of that political insight which is the highest as it is the rarest gift of statesmanship his contemporaries used to say that fox was at his best during the american war that he never surpassed the speeches he made on that subject but this is really but another way of saying that fox excelled in the power and rush of his invective no politician whose strength lay in the destructive force of his attack could wish for a better opportunity for the exercise of his particular talent than that afforded by a hateful and disastrous civil war in which every step was a blunder weakly adopted by a reluctant minister and carried on by a mechanical majority during the six years of the war parliament fox never threw away an opportunity night after night he exposed with pitiless vehemence the folly of the ministers and the hopelessness of their policy again and again he turned upon lord north and lord george germain with a fierceness of personal attack which was almost too strong for the nerves of that not over squeamish assembly negligence incapacity inconsistency unexampled treachery and falsehood our flowers of invective culled from a single speech directed in seventeen seventy five against the former in december seventeen seventy seven he turned upon the latter 
for the two years that the noble lord has presided over american affairs the most violent scalping tomahawk measures have been pursued bleeding has been his only prescription if a people deprived of their ancient rights are grown tumultuous bleed them if they are attacked by a spirit of insurrection bleed them if their fever should rise into rebellion bleed them cries the state physician more blood more blood still more blood in april seventeen seventy nine he moved for the removal of lord sandwich from the office of first commissioner of the admiralty in june stung by an accusation thrown out in the debate on the bill for doubling the militia that he had allied himself with the ministers he burst out into a torrent of passion afterwards often remembered against him what enter into an alliance with those very ministers who have betrayed their country who have prostituted the public strength who have prostituted the public wealth who have prostituted what is still more valuable the glory of the nation the idea is too monstrous to be admitted for a moment gentlemen must have foregone their principles and have given up their honour before they could have approached the threshold of an alliance so abominable so scandalous and so disgraceful does the noble lord think it possible that i can ally myself with those ministers who have led us on from one degree of wretchedness to another till at length they have brought us to the extreme moment of peril the extreme verge of destruction ally myself with those ministers who have lost america ruined ireland thrown scotland into tumult and put the very existence of great britain to the hazard ally myself with those ministers who have as they now confess foreseen the spanish war the fatal mischief which goads us to destruction and yet have from time to time told parliament that a spanish war is not to be feared to ally myself with men capable of such conduct would be to ally myself to disgrace and ruin i beg therefore for myself and my friends to disclaim any such alliance and i am the rather inclined to disavow such a connection because from the past conduct of ministers i am warranted to declare and to maintain that such an alliance would be something worse than an alliance with france and spain it would be an alliance with those who pretend to be the friends of great britain but are in fact and in truth her worst enemies he read again the philippics of demosthenes to perfect himself in the arts of vindictive declamation he was the most effective and popular of the opposition speakers the whisper that charles fox was on his legs would fill the house in a moment the rich sweep of his passion the quick thrust of his retort the sharp edge of his sarcasm afforded to every member of the house a keen intellectual pleasure for fox was never dull and never involved his arguments were intelligible to the meanest understanding his excitement was catching to those moulded in the dullest clay and the house which when his speech was over was going to outvote him by an enormous majority roared with applause as each shaft sped home to its mark yet in all the flood of eloquence which fox poured forth in this parliament there is singularly little which could at all help to put an end to the evils of which he complained his speeches must be searched through and through 
before anything can be found which shows a deeper appreciation of the dangers and the difficulties of the situation than that the blunders of ministers are the opportunity of the opposition he had to deal with a parliament which was actuated mainly by a mistaken view of what the dignity of the mother country required with a nation that was exceedingly ignorant of the thoughts and policy of the colonists as is usually the case it was ignorance not malevolence which was hurrying england along the path of destruction it was pride which prevented her leaders from acknowledging it the business of a great statesman in the years seventeen seventy four and seventeen seventy five and seventeen seventy six was to convince all thinking men that it is wise and courageous sometimes to eat humble pie to show from the acts and recorded words of the colonists themselves that they were being driven to independence not rushing to seek it to renounce wholly and frankly the old theory that colonies exist to provide markets for the trade of the mother country and to prove that the true wisdom of england would be found in promoting and not retarding the development of colonial self-government it is possible that such a policy would have had no chance of success but with the great names of chatham and of camden of burke and of fox as its sponsors it would at any rate have guaranteed that the case of the americans was put fairly before the people of england and that judgment was not merely going by default among english statesmen burke was the only one who saw that it was necessary to oppose some rival political principle to the obvious one of maintaining the legal rights of england over her colonies but unfortunately burke had not the ear of the house of commons or of the country in his great speech on conciliation with america delivered on march twenty second seventeen seventy five he laid down in words which will live as long as the empire of england has any power over men's minds the principles on which alone it can hold together my idea is therefore without considering whether we yield as matter of right or grant as matter of favour to admit the people of our colonies into an interest in the constitution my hold of the colonies is in the close affection which grows from common names from kindred blood from similar privileges and equal protection these are the ties which though light as air are strong as links of iron let the colonies always keep the idea of their civil rights associated with your government they will cling and grapple to you and no force under heaven will be of power to tear them from their allegiance but let it be once understood that your government may be one thing and their privileges another the cement is gone the cohesion is loosened and everything hastens to decay and dissolution as long as you have the wisdom to keep the sovereign authority of this country as the sanctuary of liberty the sacred temple consecrated to our common faith wherever the chosen race and sons of england worship freedom they will turn their faces toward you deny them this participation of freedom and you break that sole bond which originally made and still must preserve the unity of the empire do not entertain so weak an imagination as that your registers and your bonds your affidavits and your sufferances your cockets and your clearances are what form the great security of your commerce 
do not dream that your letters of office and your instruments and your spending clauses are the things that hold together this great contexture of this mysterious whole these things do not make your government dead instruments passive tools as they are it is the spirit of the english communion that gives all their life and efficacy to them it is the spirit of the english constitution which infused through the mighty mass pervades feeds unites invigorates and vivifies every part of the empire even down to the minutest member to turn from these noble words pregnant with deep political wisdom to the personalities of fox is to come forth from a great symphony into the midst of a vulgar street brawl yet fox was probably right in not attempting higher work than that of the dashing cavalry officer the rupert of debate he could lead a charge and win a victory but not as yet determine a policy or plan a campaign to open the eyes of england to the vast issues which lay hid under the narrow legal limits of the american question required the moral earnestness as well as the political imagination of a chatham or a burke and moral earnestness to be anything but hypocrisy must be based on moral conviction the time had not yet come when fox could lay claim to that true he could lament like mirabeau of the errors of his youth but like mirabeau he could not put them away though not the gambler that he had been before the crisis of seventeen seventy four newmarket and almax still took up most of the time which was not devoted to parliament he has abandoned says walpole of him in seventeen seventy six neither his gaming nor his rakish life and was seldom in bed before five in the morning nor out of it before two at noon it was in the following year that he visited paris and made such an unfavourable impression upon madame du deffon it was not therefore surprising that men of fashion and politicians refused to believe in the sincerity of his new convictions though they were quite ready to acknowledge the increased power of his oratory even a political opponent like lord north so little believed him to be serious as to congratulate him after one of his most scathing denunciations of lord george germain in the very hearing of his victim with a joke charles i am glad you did not fall on me to-day for you was in full feather End of section four.